This last week, uh, I had in my hand something I hadn't uh, seen for a while, and that's a $100 bill. Don't generally carry cash uh, in that denomination. And uh, I went to pay for something. It was about $24, I think it was. And I pulled out the $100 bill, and I handed it to the cashier. And she said, did you just print this today? And I said, well, not today. She gave it a little look and feel and put it in the drawer. The strange look on her face, but nonetheless gave me the cash back. And that, that got me thinking. I wondered, well, you know, I imagine there are some $100 counterfeit bills out there. How do you tell the difference easily? Can you do that? Since I hadn't seen a $100 bill in quite a while, I, it did look strange. It looked like Canadian money to me, actually. Well, there are a number of ways, and none of them are foolproof if you're not an expert, but I, I, there were a couple that stood out to me. Of the maybe seven or eight ways that the average person can tell whether a $100 bill is counterfeit or real. Uh, the one that got my attention is rub Ben Franklin's shoulder. Ben Franklin's on the $100 bill, and if you, sounds strange, you rub his shoulder, uh, the, the real bill has raised printing. And you can feel that little bit of roughness on his shoulder. That's a pretty good indication that it's not a fake. Now, another one is that if, if the Liberty Bell changes color, so that if you just shift it in the light a little bit, it changes between copper and green, I think it is. And, and that's hard to fake as well. Just two of, of a number of different ways to tell. And, and, and I realized that that's exactly what this cashier did when I handed her a $100 bill and she gave me that weird look. She, she felt Ben Franklin's shoulder and she wheeled it in the light to see did it change color. It was. It was, it was authentic. We're studying the Gospel of Mark and we come to a series of miracles that really are about authenticating Jesus, proving his identity, who he really is. And it's vital that we remember these mighty works, that, that we don't let this pass by in this anti-miracle age in which we live and realize that the purpose of these, we, we need this so we can keep a high view of Jesus, so we can constantly be reminded of who he is. That's the most important thing, because in order to survive in this turbulent world, we need to be able to answer that question, who is this Jesus? He's not just some religious figure, a great leader, great teacher, or a fascinating celebrity. As Mark begins his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, saying, this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is, and we must not forget that. He rules the world with truth and grace. He stands over the universe as Lord of all. So I want to point out to you these four miracles as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark. Four miracles that Mark records together that answer the question of who Jesus is and then see why this matters. So I'm going to share with you each miracle, then understand what's the point of this miracle, and then why all of this matters. The first miracle happens just as Jesus just finished teaching crowds of people. It happens on the Sea of Galilee. It's getting late, and Jesus says, let's go across the Sea of Galilee. He's undoubtedly exhausted after all that he has been going through. Um... I 
marvel at these human touches of Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels uh, because we, we reminded that this is God who became flesh, God in human form, incarnated, and he experienced this God who was before the creation of the world, this God came in human form to experience pain and hunger and weariness just like us. And as the Bible says, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just like us, yet without sin. So we have a Savior who can identify with us. And this trip across the Sea of Galilee no doubt provided a little space that he needed to escape from the swarms of people. Gave him time to rest. And they start out. And even then, other people got in boats, and other boats started to go with them. They, they really want to be with Jesus. Now, now, understand, the Sea of Galilee sits in a hollow surrounded by hills. And since it's a relatively small body of water in a basin, uh, a windstorm can cause great havoc, uh, quickly arising, becoming very hazardous to those on the sea. And that's exactly what happened here. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and a furious wind, the Bible says, rushed down on the boat and it started filling with water, threatening to swamp it. You might have seen pictures of this. This, uh, in 1986, I believe it was, uh, is a fishing boat found in the mud on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is famously known now as the Jesus boat, though there's nothing connecting this with Jesus other than its location, and it's from that same time period of where Jesus was. And, and uh, this boat, there's a metal frame around the bottom of it, but you can see it's, there's, it's pretty fragile. There's not a lot of love. When they dug it up, it was like wet cardboard, and it took years of chemical treatments and, and care before it could even be put into this display. Eleven years, I believe it was. Well, you just picture that's the kind of boat exactly that Jesus was in. And it, it holds 15 people. Two rowers on each side, part of that 15. Now imagine being out on that boat with a furious storm. At night, in a windstorm. Now, remember, several of the disciples were fishermen, and yet they were alarmed and in their panic they noticed Jesus is asleep on the cushion and, and by the way the, there's a definite article in the text it says the cushion which means it's the only one on the boat it's there for special occasions I guess special guests and that's where Jesus was so so they they wake him up in the middle of the storm and they say rudely they say teacher don't you care that we're dying See, they don't really yet appreciate who Jesus is. You know, for instance, if he's so great, I mean, we see him do great stuff, but if he, he knows so much and he's so great, why, wouldn't, why is he sleeping through danger? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he know we're about to die? They don't understand much more than Jesus is a great teacher. So teacher, don't you care? Verse, chapter 4, verse 39, and he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So using the, the same word that he used to silence demons, Jesus rebuked the storm. And then he says, Be still. And the Greek word is phimu, which means to muzzle. To muzzle. It's 
You bind up someone's mouth so they can't speak. It's a word that's used of muzzling an ox while he's treading the grain so he won't eat anything while he's working. And Jesus muzzles the storm, and the creation responds immediately to his word. And it's not just that the wind stopped, the waves immediately went flat, went still. Verse 41, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want to point out to you, the Greek word megas is used three times in this scene. Megas, it's where we get our word mega. It means great. So uh, it, it was a mega storm, and that became a mega calm, and yet the disciples became mega afraid. They had witnessed something they'd never seen before, and they were in terrified awe because they were in a boat with someone who controls the sea. So miracle number one, Jesus is Lord over the forces of nature. Yes! Does the Son of God muzzle every storm? No, of course not. There would be no storms otherwise. He muzzled this storm to show his sovereign power and control and authority over creation. And you and I are often in the same boat as the disciples. When storms come into our lives, whatever figuratively or literally, the question should be to us why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? If you belong to Jesus, don't you know who's in the boat with you? Don't you realize that your life is in his hands? That nothing happens outside of his control? He rules over wind and wave and flood and hurricane. He's Lord over the forces of nature. Second miracle. After the storm, they get to the other side of the sea, which is non-Jewish territory. In verse 2 of chapter 5, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So we move from a wild sea to a wild man. And Mark includes a lot of graphic detail about this guy. He was demonized because he was possessed by unclean evil spirits. He was uncontrollable. So there's a lot of detail about how hard it was for the people that they tried uh, in his community, tried to control him, they couldn't, they tried to chain him down, but he broke the shackles, and he lived out among the tombs, he lived in the cemetery, a place nobody else would live and would only venture when they had to bury a dead body, he's chased out of town, what a horrid existence, but it's worse than that, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we have this man, his screams fill the night. He's gashing his naked body with sharp rocks. He's a pitiful sight. The town knew him well and they avoided this uncontrollable creature. Seeing Jesus arrive from a long way off, he runs to him and falls immediately on his, on his, before Jesus' feet. He falls down, but not in worship. He, he falls down in fearful respect of the one who is more powerful, of the one who is superior. And this demonized man, and frankly, it's very difficult to tell in the text when the demon is talking and when the man is talking. It's hard to tell. But, but he shrieks out, what do you want with me, son of God? See, he knows who Jesus is. Even the demons know. Verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? 
And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. So this man is occupied by an army of demons who join together in one force to make a home in this wretched man, slowly destroying his life in isolation and filth. Now let me just say that no child of God can be demon-possessed. That's not the part of this text, but I want to make that clear. If your faith is in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the living God. And, and no demon can make its home in you. Now, can demons uh, disturb us and, and discourage? Yes, they can. But, but you can't be possessed as a child of God. So this demon, the, the legion, begs to be sent into a herd of pigs feeding nearby. This demon does not want to be disembodied, and so he begs, I don't want to leave the territory. Send me into the pigs. And Jesus responds, verse 13, he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, I want you to, there's several things I want you to notice here. One is that it's only by the permission of Jesus that the demons left. His permission. And they left where they wanted to go where they asked to go. And, and by the way, the presence of the pigs shows for sure that this is Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. Jewish law forbid eating pork. Uh, no Jewish person would, would be a pig farmer. And so there's this herd of pigs. There's people farming them. This is not Jewish territory. The pig was an unclean animal. So the demons enter the pigs, and they drive the pigs mad and, and uh, immediately destroy themselves and show that their real purpose and their eventual uh, what was to destroy. Jesus didn't send them to destruction. They drove the pigs the, to destruction themselves. Now, I want to point out there are several military words used in this scenario. First of all, the word legion, which is referring to a portion of the Roman army. Uh, the, the word herd, though, is not a word, H-E-R-D, not a word used of pigs. It, it, actually, it means a company. It refers to a band of military recruits. And then the words that Jesus gave permission, it means to dismiss, to give leave. It's like a commanding officer to an enlisted man, giving him liberty. So all this military language. See, the demons had complete charge of this poor man. No one could control him. And then came Jesus, the commanding officer. Boom, all over. And so that second miracle is that Jesus is Lord over the forces of evil. He's Lord, he's sovereign, he's a ruler over the forces of evil. Now how this story ends is also interesting because we have two very different responses to this miraculous event. The pig farmers run off to tell the community what happened. They went to the city, they went to the country, they wanted to tell everybody what happened. They're freaked out, and people start showing up, and when they do, they see this guy who was crazy and scary and screaming and naked, and he's just sitting there clothed and in his right mind. So, big change. And as a result, they were afraid. They're afraid. Jesus had done what they could not do, and you'd expect celebration to break out. You'd expect many to follow Jesus. And yet instead of thanking him, instead of giving him a key to the city for solving one of their social problems, what do they do? Verse 17, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Get out of town! 
This miracle causes them to oppose Jesus. They want him out. You say, well, why? Well, maybe it's the loss of the pigs, which was a financial downfall. It hurt them financially. But all those people? I'm not so sure. I mean, how many pigs? I mean, 2,000 is a lot of pigs. And they just picture them going off the cliff. And, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, for some, that was the loss of their financial future. It's sort of like watching the stock market the last week. You see, like, pigs going over the cliff. There goes my financial future. And perhaps they were bothered by the... And certainly money can choke out reception to the Word of God. We saw that last week. It, certainly money, love of wealth, or distraction with wealth can cloud our spiritual vision. Regardless, these people seem to be far more concerned with pigs than they are people. And they beg Jesus to leave, and he does. Beg Jesus to leave, he leaves. But there's another response. Jesus is leaving... Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Same word for begging here, praying. While the uh, city prayed for Jesus to leave, the man prayed to be with Jesus. Those are two reactions when you see the power of God at work in Christ. Please go away. You're asking too much. I'm afraid of your demands. I'm afraid of your power. I, 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 don't, I, I, I can't pay the, the cost of what it might mean to, to follow you, Jesus. Or, please come into my life and never leave. I'm desperate for your grace and mercy. Only your power can save me. And I would pray that if you are one who has not received Jesus, prayed for him, begged for him to come into your life, that today would be the day that you do so. Now, Jesus sends that transformed man home. He, he says, don't, don't come with me. No, you need to go home and tell your family what God has done. And, and so he tells everyone how much Jesus had done for him. And here's a picture of someone whose life has been transformed by Christ. Here's what those who have been transformed by Christ are like. When you believe Jesus is the one who paid for your sin on the cross and you've exchanged your brokenness, your sinfulness for his righteousness, then you are made new. And you have a new life. You're a new creation. You have a new name, a new identity in Jesus. Before you belonged to the kingdom of darkness, you were ruled by the God of this world. But in Jesus you enter the kingdom of light and you belong to the one who has conquered sin and death and hell. Once you were spiritually dead but now you are alive in Christ and that transformation is radical and it's real go home to your family and show them what God has done for you Jesus is Lord over the forces of evil if you're in Christ he's transformed your life now come now to miracle number three Jesus crosses the sea again and a crowd's waiting for him. He can't get away from the crowds. And a man named Jairus is frantic to see Jesus. He falls at his feet, Jairus does, verse 23. Employed him, employed him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. As a father of two daughters, I can just imagine the desperation of this father. His child is near death. And you've heard Jesus has healed some sick people and you believe that he can cure her since nothing else can. He can cure her with a touch. Begs Jesus to come with him. 
It's not recorded that Jesus says anything. He just goes. Goes with Jairus. Headed toward his house. And a huge crowd of people follow along too. It's like Facebook Live. They want to see what's happening right now. We don't want to miss anything. But something else happens first. There's a woman in this crowd who's been bleeding for 12 years. And, and verse 26 tells us that she's seen many physicians and she's suffered a lot at their hands. She's tried all kinds of remedies, but she's only gotten worse. She's spent her money. Uh, I'm grateful to have health care, very expensive proposition. We have a, a $9,000 deductible for our family. As far as I know, we've not come anywhere close any year to using that deductible yet, which is, that's good, right? Because if you use a $9,000 deductible, that means that somebody's been sick or had a test or, or, or uh, uh, and you're out $9,000, right? So gratefully, haven't had to use that. But what's happened with this woman? She spent all she had and it didn't help. So she's ill and broke. She spent it all. But she's heard enough about Jesus to have hope. And she thought, if I just touch his garment, I'll be whole. See, there's some magic. There's some superstition involved, but there's faith as well. So she snuck up behind Jesus as he's surrounded by this crowd. And immediately, verse 29, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So even though her faith seems to have a little magic attached to it, her belief is sort of mingled with superstition, she's healed. And after 12 years of pain and humiliation, instantaneous healing. And then it gets a little awkward because Mark describes how Jesus felt the power go out from him. And he turns around looking this way and that and says, who touched me? And the disciples, are going, what? they can't figure this out. What do you mean, who touched you? And, and but why are you worried about that anyway? We're all like on an emergency mission, Jesus. You got a, a little girl dying and her dad is leading us. And like, what? why do you care who touched you? There's a crowd all around us. People are touching and jostling. and There's this mess here. What's, what's going on, Jesus? Let's see, this touch was different. Somebody touched Jesus expecting salvation. Her faith released the power, and Jesus had to talk with her. He had to talk with her for several reasons. One is that so she would know that it was not superstition that saved her, but God. She falls down at his feet, trembling in fear. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So miracle number three, Jesus is Lord over the forces of disease. Over the forces of disease. Now, Jesus healed some physical sicknesses while he was on this earth in order to prove that he is the Savior over all spiritual sickness. Jesus didn't come into our world to eradicate all illness, cancer, maladies, disorder now. He came, he said, to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's come, to be the Savior. Through this miracle, he proves, he shows that he is sovereign over all diseases and therefore can be trusted to bring eternal healing. It's proving his identity as the Savior. Fourth miracle. While Jesus is still talking to this woman, a message comes from Jairus' house that his daughter's dead. You don't need to bother Jesus now. It's too late. It took too long. She's dead. 
And Jesus, hearing this, said, don't fear. Only believe. Only believe. And he gets to Jairus' house, and he enters, taking in only with him Peter, James, and John. And inside, he finds this commotion, this cacophony of sound, loud weeping and wailing. And what's going on here? Let me, let me just point out, a rabbi, Rabbi Judah, said that even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. So, so no matter how poor you are, you're going to have a proper funeral, you've got to have at least two flute players. My wife is a flautist. I think that's offensive to flautists. And a wailing woman. Now, Jairus was a wealthy man. He could afford far more than that. His family could. So undoubtedly, this is part of the, the paid performance that's going on. In addition to the absolute grief of losing a child, but there were people there who were paid to chant and sing and hand clap and wail over the dead to show this is a big deal. And Jesus chases them all out of the house. And then he enters into the girl's room where she is on her deathbed. And he takes with him Peter, James, John, and Mr. and Mrs. Jairus. So the six of them are in the room with the dead girl. And taking her by the hand, verse 41, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And we, we learned too, this child was 12 years old. And at the word of Jesus, she's immediately and completely healed. And the parents are overcome. The disciples are overcome with amazement. Disease was one thing. But this was death. And Jesus overruled and he brought it back to life. Miracle number four. Jesus is Lord over the forces of death. This week I read an article by Marjorie Brimley. And she tells how she became a widow at age 38 with two young children. Three young children, actually. And the, her article was about how hard it is to date when you're a young widow. And all the different ways she tried to, you know, get to that. And the, this is what caught my attention. She said, recently I met a handsome stranger and we got to talking about religion and spirituality. The man said, I believe in God, but not a God that intervenes here on earth. I agree, Brimley said, because otherwise, why the blank is my husband dead? And she said that sort of put a kibosh on that date. But that's, that's the feeling. If there is a God who cared about our world, my husband would not be dead at age 38. Maybe you felt that way about something. But let me assure you that God does intervene on this earth. Sin and death still occur, but Jesus came to give us hope and to make victory possible. I want you to hear from a Christian pulpit, death is still an enemy. You might have been to some Christian funerals where it was all sunshine and roses, and that's fine too, but death is still an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death. Jesus conquered it so that all who believe in him will live even though they die. That's the hope. And so how does that help those of us who are grieving the loss of a loved one? See, death, along with disease and disaster and countless other evils, are the result of sin entering this world. And God gave us free will, and as a result, we have evil. But it is also that free will that makes love and joy possible. Think, as a parent... 
Would you trade in the relationship with your daughter or your son to spare yourself the pain of losing him or her? Would any of you who have ever hemorrhaged from the heart trade in your capacity to love in order to feel safe all the time? Would you give up the years of marriage that you did have to escape the pain of grief at the death of a spouse? The effects of sin are deep in this world. In this life, you cannot escape accidents, illness, evil, catastrophe, disease, and death. But God invaded our world in his son Jesus to bring us light and life. And these four miracles show us our powerful Savior. Jesus stilled a storm that could not be stilled. He tamed the man who could not be tamed. He cured the woman who could not be cured. He raised the daughter who could not be raised. Why? To authenticate that he is Jesus, the Son of the living God. And so I urge you today, and I remind you today, to put your hope in the cosmic Christ, Jesus who is Lord of all. That he is, as the Bible says, the image of the invisible God. That by him all things were created. That he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus is. And in fearful amazement, you can either send him packing, get out of my life, or you bow before him as Lord of all. And if you're indifferent, you've neither seen him or heard him. You cannot experience the Lord of all creation and be unchanged. You either reject him in fear or bow in worship. When John Claypool was pastor of Crescent Hill Baptist Church, his little daughter suffered with leukemia. She went into remission and everybody thought that maybe God had healed her, but on Easter Sunday morning, the disease returned with a vengeance. And Claypool writes that for two weeks, his daughter was racked with pain, her eyes swollen shut. And she asked him, Daddy, Did you talk to God about my leukemia? Yes, dear. We've been praying so hard for you. And she said, what did God say? How long will my leukemia last? And what do you tell your daughter when you can't help her? What do you tell her, as John felt, when the heavens are silent? John was exhausted emotionally, exhausted spiritually. And a few hours later, she died. The following Sunday morning, John Claypool got into the pulpit to preach. He preached from Isaiah 40, verse 31, that says, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The gospel calls us to put all our hope in the Lord of creation. Regardless of what happens, that's where our hope belongs. Because without him, you face whatever it is alone. Without him, death is the end. Without him, faith and forgiveness and peace are fiction. Without him, there is no hope. Jesus is the cosmic Christ, God's own son. He invaded our world to make a way for us to the Father and he is the way and the truth and the life and with him all things are possible and this life is not the end bow before him in adoration throw yourself at his mercy for he alone rules the forces of nature of evil of desperation and death put your hope in him who is Lord of all
Lord, allow us in our weakness to put our trust in you. Whatever we are facing right now, whatever storm we might be enduring, or whatever we might be fearing, Lord, may we see the, the bright shining radiance of your glory and of your power and trust in the one who is Lord over all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.